In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. The kids are not all right. Millions of children are dangerously being drugged under a label of ADHD, and numbers continue to rise. How did we get here? In his latest book, Obedience Pills, author Patrick Hahn has documented the history and evolution of this diagnosis and the compelling lack of evidence showing any long-term benefits. On today's podcast, we welcome Dr. Patrick Hahn. Welcome to Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin. We've got a new website, radgenpod.com. Sean, excellent job with the website. Thank you, brother. And, uh, you know, this is take two because we had some issues, but uh, I did thank Canva because Canva makes things very easy. They are not a sponsor, but um, I will promote them because I think they do great work and it's really easy for people to do work also. So everybody use Canva. Yeah, easy access for our to download our episodes and our social. We've been wanting to talk about ADHD for quite some time, but I don't feel like we have had the background knowledge of the, the disorder, the science behind it. We see it exploding in American society, certainly very questionable science behind the diagnosis and some disturbing trends uh, with the identification of that disorder as if there's a, you know, a sound medical ideology behind it and uh, it can you know impair a person's ability to achieve things in their life luckily we were able to have access to a amazing book which is a segue to our current guest today i want to welcome dr patrick hahn who is an affiliate professor of biology at loyola university he's the author of recently released obedience pills adhd and the medicalization of childhood i want to welcome Dr. Han to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Thank you. Dr. Han, let's get right into it. First of all, I am intrigued by your interest in this subject. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you down this road? Well, my background is in zoology. So my doctorate is not uh, in a relevant field. I don't render diagnoses or prescribe medication. Uh, but I think my background has given me a perspective which is undervalued. Uh, I was trained as an evolutionary biologist, and uh, it's perfectly obvious to me that our bodies, and always remember our brains are part of our bodies, are marvelous instruments. Uh, they are the product of over 500 million years of evolution. And uh, this vision of human beings that's being promoted these days as these disease-ridden creatures who need huge amounts of medical care to, from cradle to grave to keep us alive uh, does not, uh, has never sat well with me. And I began looking into these matters. And uh, at the preposterously advanced age of 51, I went back to school and earned a second master's degree in science writing from the Johns Hopkins University. Uh, since then, it's been an amazing journey uh, 
I've published three books. My first book, um, Madness and Genetic Determinism, was a history of psychiatric genetics. My second book, Prescription for Sorrow, uh, was about antidepressants, suicide, and violence. And my third book, Obedience Pills, is on the ADHD industry. And uh, I've come to the conclusion there is no such thing as ADHD. It's not even a coherent diagnostic category. It's simply a label that has uh, been promoted in order to promote the drugging of children. Mm. So the primary treatment for ADHD is through stimulant medication, um, kind of methamphetamine form of methamphetamine, and maybe you can talk a little bit about the science. I would imagine if we're going to drug up young developing brains, we have some clear diagnostic tests that would identify this to be a, a brain disorder and that we can then monitor the um, administration of these drugs over time and it would be correcting some abnormality. There's got to be some strong foundation of science around this to support such an experimental um, you know, medical intervention with potential consequences? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> decades of research, billions of dollars spent on brain imaging studies and on genome-wide association studies uh, has found no evidence that the brains of children labeled ADHD are different from the brains of children not so labeled. Uh, the history of brain imaging studies goes way back. Uh, the first person to uh, prescribe stimulant drugs uh, for uh, the diagnostic label that we now call ADHD was Charles Bradley. And he worked with troubled children at the uh, Emma Pemberton Bradley home in Rhode Island, named after a distant cousin of Charles Bradley, by the way. And so every history of the diagnostic category that became known as ADHD mentions Charles Bradley. But what they usually do not mention or gloss over is why he started giving drugs to kids in the first place. Uh, Dr. Bradley employed a technique called pneumoencephalography to study the brains of children. And what this means is a child would be strapped into a rotating chair, and after enduring a painful lumbar puncture, uh, would have a quantity of air injected into the uh, spinal canal. And then the chair would be rotated into a series of positions in a specified sequence in order to displace the cerebrospinal fluid in the brain with air to make a better contrast for x-rays. And not surprisingly, uh, this procedure left the charges, we left his young charges with splitting headaches, dizziness, vertigo, nausea. It could take weeks for the normal amount of cerebrospinal fluid to be regenerated. And so Dr. Bradley became concerned about the misery this procedure was inflicting upon his young charges. 
not concerned enough to stop doing it, <laughs> but concerned nonetheless. And uh, he began giving the newly released drug, amphetamine, uh, that was uh, produced by SmithKline and French, the forerunner of GlaxoSmithKline, to these, to these boys. And actually, the drug did nothing for his... Uh, for their headaches, but he found it affected their behavior. Uh, it made the children more subdued, quiet, uh, better able to focus on boring tasks. And uh, hundreds of studies since then have confirmed this. These drugs, there's no doubt these drugs produce the kind of changes in children that an exhausted parent or a harried school teacher would likely regard as improvements. But decades of study has not shown any data for any lasting benefit of these drugs to kids. Uh, the, the MTA study, the multimodal treatment study, this was the by far the largest, by far the longest study uh, run by eminently credentialed doctors, uh, probably every one of whom was Pro-Med, and uh, they had a total of 579 children randomly assigned to four treatment groups. Uh, medication alone, medication plus therapy, therapy alone, and usual community care, whatever that means. And after uh, so the randomization phase lasted 14 months, at which point all the kids were released to usual community care. And at the uh, eight-year follow-up, they found no difference between any of the treatment groups for any of 24 outcome variables. No effect on ADHD symptoms. No effect on oppositional behavior or antisocial behavior. No effect on anxiety or depression. No effect on reading skills, math skills, grade point averages, grade retention. No effect on psychiatric hospitalization, social functioning, traffic tickets, auto accidents. The list goes on and on. The only long-term effect they were able to document with these children was that the drugs stunt the kids' growth. That was it. Wow. So this leads us into something that you wrote in your book. It was a question, and it was, uh, is hyperactivity in the eye of the beholder? And I thought this to be a great question, which brings kind of bias into the scientific equation, like how many observational studies can be skewed by that very idea? And so what parents might see, what teachers might see, if they are told that the child is on medication, it could actually create some sort of bias through their observation. Is that an accurate you know, presumption that could be considered? Yeah, well, there's, I have some anecdotes in my book of parents who were pressured to put their kids on the drugs. And they told the teacher that the kids were taking the drugs, but they didn't actually give them the drugs. Mm -hmm. And the teachers noticed wonderful improvement in the child's behavior, 
Or conversely, there was a parent who took her child off the drugs but didn't say anything, and the teacher didn't notice anything. Then she told the teacher that she had taken him off the drugs, and suddenly she got a flood of complaints about the boy's behavior. Yeah, the uh, criteria for a diagnosis of ADHD are hopelessly subjective and context-dependent. Yeah, that leads me to my, my next question. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people who are going to be listening to this podcast who are working under some assumptions. Let's say that they've never considered themselves to have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, but know people who identify with that condition. There's almost this presumption that there is some strong evaluation process that would lead them to obtain such a diagnosis. From your research, how do people obtain this diagnosis, generally speaking? Well, it's usually the, the child's behavior is deemed a problem by somebody, usually the teacher or the parent, and uh, they refer the child to some professional, uh, usually a pediatrician, by the way. I think these diagnoses are mostly made by pediatricians, not psychiatrists. And they're not trained in counseling or therapy. Uh, they, uh, they're, they're trained in running through a symptom checklist and prescribing drugs. Yeah, there's, there's certainly no biological test for ADHD or any of the other functional disorders uh, treated. And, and who's developed these checklists? Uh, they're um, psychiatrists and psychologists, um, the majority of whom are on the payroll of the drug companies. Yeah, these diagnostic categories are voted in, there's, uh, it's about as, sci the process is about as scientific as the quizzes in Cosmopolitan magazine. <laughs> <laughs> so we have, we have a great opportunity. So we go ahead, Roger. Sorry. Yeah. So I have to share a little story here about my experiences. Before I was a psychologist, I was working in the school systems. I was a school counselor and that's actually how I met Kelly. And how these conditions were diagnosed was through these symptom checklists, they'd be provided to the teachers. So the teachers, you know, you'd give to three or four. I'd be the, the counselor. I'd spread it out to each one. And uh, to meet diagnostic criteria, these symptoms needed to be displayed in like two separate environments, right? So one is almost always the school, and then the second is generally the, the home. And you would have these three or four teachers who would rate the child completely differently, right? So oh, absolutely. You, you realize that how much of it was context dependent. So the environment shaped kind of the behavioral response. Now we're talking about developing boys for the most part. The girls who were identified were, it was some subjective idea of like where their focus or their attention is. But we're talking about developing boys in elementary or middle school who want to be moving, who want to be outside, who have a hard time sitting still. Now, there's variations in, in human behavior. So some kids are able to do that quite well, while other kids are just itching to get out of their seat. And it ultimately became this subjective rating based on the personality of the, the teacher. The, the, the teacher's tolerance for um, behavior in their classroom and how they reacted to the kid was always determined what hyperactivity actually is. So the degree of the problem is going to be determined by the individual teacher. And then the home environment. So the home environment gets to rate it. 
So you'd have a, a mother and a father then rating it quite differently as well. So it speaks to the subjectivity of these disorders. So there's no biological test, no biological marker. It's the subjective understanding of what is typical and acceptable human behavior. Yeah, I've spoken with Dr. Bregan about these matters numerous times over the years. And he said, if the child is having problems in school, a change of schools or a change of teachers can take care of the problem immediately. And I mean immediately. Yeah, and, and let's have some sympathy for our beleaguered public school teachers. Well, I'm a teacher too, but I- I'm, I'm one of them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a teach, I teach university. It's a whole different kettle of fish. Um, yeah. They've got a near impossible job. I, I wouldn't do what they do for all the tea in China. But, you know, as I point out in the book, we can take all the money we spend on drugging kids for this imaginary diagnostic category, and we could hire an extra 350,000 teachers or an extra 800,000 teachers' aides. I say let's try that experiment, see how that works. I, I agree. And um, the question that I was going to lead into, Roger, thank you for, for talking about it. I was curious from a teacher's perspective what type of formal training is provided, if any at all, to try and accurately identify something that would be considered. You know, so all I answer that is a teach as a teacher in public school, the the answer to that question is none. You none. watch you watch some videos in the beginning of the year that might be about, you know, ADHD if you're a young teacher. Um, other than that, no. And I know, I think in your book you said it was the Connors Comprehensive Behavior Rating Scale. I'm not sure if that's what they still use. Yeah, that well, that's that's one of them. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you 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 look at the Connors uh, behavior scale. They have these uh, items like sits fiddling with small yeah. objects, yes. sullen or sulky, tattles, acts smart. Didn't that used to be called <laughs> acting like a kid? It's crazy. Yeah, it really is. And so I I did are mutually I, exclusive. Submissive is an item, so is defiant. Yes. Excitable is a symptom, so is inattentive. Stubborn is a symptom, and so is overly eager to please. And how do we know these are all caused by this thing called ADHD, which apparently you have or don't have, like a rock in a basket? It's a great point. It's a great point. And I did these questionnaires. I did two of them this past year, and I can tell you that most of the behaviors on those lists are seen in, in almost every single student at some point on any given day. And then they go to these extremes and you anchor yourself to maybe one thing where you might have seen a kid get out of his seat for a second and stretch out, right? And then sit back down. And if he's the one that I have to focus on, I have to go, oh, well, he got up, got out of his seat. So I guess that was a yeah, but I just don't, I don't quite understand how they're taking this data and then saying, well, now we're now he's diagnosable. It just doesn't make any sense to me as a teacher. I'm sorry, but well, well Dr. Connors assistant. felt pretty bad about the monster he helped create at the end of his life. Let's see, I've got his quote here. Just a moment. Uh and Dr. Connors was part of the MTA study as well. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, he said uh he called the skyrocketing rates of ADHD diagnosis a national disaster. 
mm. of dangerous proportions. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the influence um, on American culture and society. You make a pretty strong case of financial conflict of interest with the pharmaceutical companies. Specifically, I don't want to make sure I have this name correct, um, the Biederman Group, Biederman Group. Uh, yeah. Group. yeah. Um, and I think that's a Harvard-trained you know, psychiatrist, uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. Can you tell a little bit about the, um, you know, the influence on... The, the publication um, through academics and about some of the clinical trials that tried to uh, you know, bring safety and efficacy of, of stimulant drugs to, to United States children? Yeah, the, um, the first point we need to make crystal clear is drug company money means our money, my money, your money, your money. Uh, 14% of prescription drug costs are paid for out of pocket. That means 86% are paid for by the rest of us. You're paying with your tax dollars, you're paying with your insurance premiums, you're paying in the form of higher prices. And if you are one of America's tens of millions of benefits ineligible employees who are often doing the same work as their benefits eligible colleagues for a fraction of their pay and no benefits, you're paying with your surplus labor. So drug company money means our money. So the drug companies take our money and use it to manufacture and control the evidence purporting to show that their wares are safe and effective. Then they take more of our money and use it to fund expert panels to decide who should take the drugs. Then they take more of our money and use it to pay the key opinion leaders to tout the drug makers' wares at professional meetings. Then they take more of our money and uh, use it to pay for advertising in medical journals and reprint orders. And then they take more of our money and uh, use it to fund direct-to-consumer advertising, which not only helps stoke demand for their product, but with the legacy media um, starving, uh, losing ad revenue, it makes them compliant and unwilling to, uh, to uh, turn a critical eye on the situation. The, the daytime talk shows back in the 90s did some pretty hard-hitting pieces about uh, psychiatric drugs in general and ADHD drugs in particular. And all that came to a stop in 1997, and that was the same year the FDA allowed direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription drugs. And I think only the United States and New Zealand are the, the countries that allow that? Yes, that's correct. Um, <laughs> but I assume they, they can get it on uh, the Internet. And the drug makers make an end run around. They fund, fund these patient advocacy aware uh, organizations, which are just thinly veiled advertising. I discuss this in the book. I mean, the United States leads the world in this obsession. Uh, we consume something like 80% of ADHD drugs. And if you look at uh, spending, it's even higher. It's 92%. But the rest of the world is catching up with us, and they're funding patient advocacy organizations all over the globe. 
to try to sell. And what's being sold is not just a specific drug or even a specific diagnostic category, but a specific worldview that human distress is a manifestation of a drug treatable brain disease and that the drug makers have safe and effective remedies for these problems. I think what's very disturbing is how the general medical community really does minimize the harms a lot of these drugs can induce in people. But let, let's stick with the with children and who are prescribed stimulant medication. It's almost like there's this um, overwhelming kind of acceptance that these drugs pr- produce very little harm. Yeah, Dr. Bradley began giving these kids amphetamine. And then in... Uh the 1950s, SIBA introduced Ritalin, which is very similar to amphetamine. And for a while, Ritalin prescriptions almost completely eclipsed everything else. Today, it's about 60% amphetamine and 40% Ritalin. So uh, this amphetamine, this is the same drug that is known colloquially on the street as speed. Mm-hmm. Not a similar drug, the same drug. So in, in, in the short term, what would you expect? Like, let's say there's a short-term drug trial or you place your kid on speed, amphetamine, for a short period of time. What would you expect? Well, most of them, as I said, it uh, enhances their ability to hyper-focus on boring tasks. It, it flattens their affect, creates the kind of changes that a harassed schoolteacher or an exhausted parent might regard as an improvement. In a minority, it causes mania and violence. And we've known this as long as these drugs have been on the market. I mean, I'm so old. I can remember back when even the hippies knew speed kills. Mm, So uh, there there was um, the rates of bipolar disorder. Uh, Bob Whitaker pointed this out in his book, uh, Mad in America. When we began giving adults prescribing large numbers of adults antidepressants and stimulants, the rate of bipolar disorder skyrocketed. And then the experiment was repeated a second time. We began giving these drugs to children and the rate of childhood bipolar disorder skyrocketed. And childhood bipolar disorder was unheard of before we began giving kids stimulants and antidepressants. As I was reading uh, the summary of this uh, evolution in terms of the diagnosis constantly expanding towards a new set of people, when I worked in the business world, sometimes you would kick off a project and the project would be specifically the intent was to solve one problem. And then when people became aware that this project was happening, they would look to try and plug in the other things that they wanted to solve. And it's called scope creep, where it would constantly expand towards other things and it loses its focus. I almost see it in politics, too. I think we have this uh, semiconductor bill that's working its way through. And from what everybody's saying, it's just filled with pork, which means it's just all this money that's going towards things that's really not intended for what it's probably intentionally trying to solve. Do you feel like that's happening here where there's this constant expansion of the diagnosis criteria so that it can all of a sudden the addressable market goes from a couple hundred thousand to just millions of people so they can just constantly sell it to others oh definitely yeah i mean the some people some people seem to have the idea that the fda tests drugs 
to see if they're safe, safe and effective. And they absolutely do not. Basically, what they do is tick the boxes that say that the drug makers have affirmed that these drugs are safe and effective. And so I, I mentioned before, the drug makers manufacture and control the evidence purporting to show their wares are safe and effective. And they have a fiduciary duty, not just to make profit, but to make a bigger profit than last quarter. They can't do otherwise. If they do, the shareholders will fire them and get somebody in there who will do that and do whatever they need. And there, there's no way that a system like this cannot result in drug wrecks on a massive scale. The amount of harm being done by the drug companies is just incalculable. So the question I have is, right now, a lot of this is being identified by parents and by teachers and by you know, pediatricians that aren't necessarily trained to, to identify this accurately. Um, hyperactivity is something. There's definitely children that are, are more hyper. So what are some other possible explanations for hyperactivity that should be looked at first? Well, that, that's a great question. Um, there are literally hundreds of reasons why any given child might have problems with hyperactivity or inattention. And far better to identify the source of that child's distress and address it than attribute that child's problems to some imaginary disease entity, the existence of which has never been demonstrated. Uh, I'm sure lack of outdoor free play time is a big one. I'm sure lack of proper discipline is a big one. Uh, I have to say, I had my child in the 1960s, and I do not remember my childhood as terribly harsh and punitive. In fact, I remember it as rather pleasant. And in spite of the fact, no, not in spite of, because of the fact that grown-ups were in charge. Everybody knew that. Even the juvenile delinquents knew that. They would break the rules when kids weren't looking. Oh, yes, we had, we had kids like that. But even they would not have dreamed of directly challenging grown-up authority. And none of us had perfect parents. But it's far better for grown-ups to be in charge than not to be in charge. Uh, there are plenty of other reasons why children might have problems with inattention and hyperactivity a bad reaction to food, uh, nutrient deficiency. Uh, ser there are some, uh, some serious medical problems, heart problems. Uh, some of these children come from chaotic or abusive homes. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, they're not a homogeneous bunch. There are hundreds of reasons why any child might have problems with inattention or hyperactivity. And let's take a look at that child's problems and try to help them. Yeah, there was, uh, I'm sorry, there was a, a moment in your book where you were talking about one of the, the, the clients, I think her name was Diane and a, a, a Dr. Tar, and she almost mentioned like there's a blind faith that this is the doctor who, you know, helped birth your children and been with them all throughout childhood. And then when you go in and you meet with your doctor and the doctor prescribes this medication, there's a confidence and a trust that's been there that you would feel like the doctor would never put your children in, in a situation where they may be harmed but 
I think a lot of doctors are right now, they're, they're stressed in terms of the amount of time that they can put towards anything. So those 15 minutes are really not an adequate amount of time to identify all those possible causes that could be related to hyperactivity. Right. And the doctors are going by information produced by the drug companies. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I'll give you an example of the kind of medical intervention I support. When I was seven years old, I was running outside and... Uh, I wasn't looking where I was going, as seven-year-olds are prone to doing, and I shoved my hand through a plate glass window. So my parents took me to the respected town dock, and he stitched me up, and I was fine. And I have no doubt he treated me the way he would have liked to have been treated, or the way he would have liked one of his loved ones to be treated. And he built social capital as a result. But today, doctors are hemmed in by guidelines, which are written, as I mentioned, by people employed by the drug companies. And uh, I'm getting a sense that a lot of the exchanges between doctor and patient are, are just getting increasingly nasty. And uh, I, I have the, I'm fortunate, I have a primary care provider for the first time since childhood. Uh, he's actually a local semi-celebrity who reached out to me to express admiration for some of my op-eds in the Baltimore Sun. And he respects my desire not to take pills if I can avoid it. But um, I, I get the sense that that kind of doctor is pretty rare these days. Mm -hmm. So I do know, albeit a few people who swear by ADHD medications, and so that their child had focused more. Being a teacher, you do hear this on occasion, especially when you go into some IEP meetings and things like that. They believe that their child wouldn't have succeeded without those medications. But in those few occasions, what I've noticed about their parenting is that they were heavily involved, that they embraced a strong work ethic. They created a schedule for their, for their children. So is it, is it possible that these parents are kind of misinterpreting the observations, giving the pills credit when in fact they should be giving themselves credit for, you know, kind of getting more involved with their children's lives and giving them the outlets that they need to be more active. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're seeing a difference in the child's behavior, but that's only because the child is, is, is more involved. They're, they're more engaged. They're able to move around more. Oh yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, getting the label can sometimes result in a good thing. These children may get therapy, help in organizing. Uh, that's great. I mean, even for children coming from chaotic or abusive homes, they're, they're getting regular doctor's visits. They're getting something that looks like care and concern. That may not sound like much to you or me, but uh, to children who are starved for positive attention, that may be help. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, they're, they're, the drug makers and their minions, their they're favorite ploy today, they seem to have given up on the Scientology straw man there. Now, when people question the value of their nostrums, they just talk about stigma. But I can imagine few things more stigmatizing to parents than telling them they are helpless to assist the child with his problems. Isn't that the whole reason? We have parents. Right. Mm -hmm. um, 
One other, there was two things in the book that really stood out for me. Number one, it was the MTA study that you've already taken us through. And the years of that was right around 2001 to 2017, if I'm not correct. There was the different phases in terms of going back. back it was in, in the early 90s to the, uh, to the early 2000s. Okay. And then they did follow-ups every eight years after yeah. to, to see if there was any long-term benefit whatsoever. Yeah, and, um, and I have to say that the three-year follow-up out of 24 outcome variables, they found three where uh, the drug seemed to help, three out of 24. And uh, the eight-year follow-up found no benefit, 16-year-old found, found no benefit. And some of the biggest names in the ADHD industry are still citing the three-year follow-up. Uh, I have a, a thing here, um, Stephen Hinshaw, he's a clinical psychologist and he uh, cited the, the uh, three-year follow-up of the, uh, in a 2013 book, he talked about the three-year follow-up, which uh, was purported to show some benefits. He didn't mention the eight-year follow-up, uh, which was published in 2009. And I think it's pretty unlikely Stephen Hinshaw was unaware of that paper because the, uh, the second author on that paper was Stephen P. Hinshaw. The other thing that stood out, um, and this goes back to the subjectivity in terms of how a teacher could potentially interpret things incorrectly. Um, you had mentioned that in November 2018, there was a meta-analysis that reconfirmed that a lot had already been known, but it said the youngest half of children in a grade are more likely to be diagnosed with and drugged for ADHD than their older classmates. So what does that tell us? Yeah, that's been, that, that's been replicated again and again and again. The youngest children in a grade are much more likely to, to be diagnosed with ADHD than the oldest ones. And it, it, anybody with two adjacent brain cells could figure out this is just youthful immaturity, which the child should be expected to grow out of if he's given a chance. I completely agree. And I can think back to the times when I was in a certain class and depending on who the teacher was and maybe who the girl in the classroom was, I would act completely differently because I'd be showing off or wanting to get attention from that girl that I liked and the teacher would interpret it completely differently. Or sometimes just to even make friends. Sometimes yes. you just impress other people. You're going to do some, some things that you normally wouldn't do that are going to be looked at as hyperactive. Exactly. The Deborah Ria, she's a professor of, actually professor of physical education. And she instituted a program called the LINK program in Texas and Oklahoma. And they give children in grades K through three an hour of unstructured free play time every day in 15 minute intervals. Children never spend more than an hour in class without a break. And they found the rate of off-task, injurious, or antisocial behaviors went down. And the rate of positive behaviors, hopping, clapping, skipping, jumping, cheering, laughing, smiling, went up. Imagine that. <laughs> Kids who are allowed to play outside, laugh, and smile more. Oh, and what about the all-important standardized test scores? Mm. Those went up too. Not by a lot, but they went up. They didn't go down. The contemporary thinking seems to be, let's lengthen the school day, cut, cut down recess, cut it out entirely, pile on homework as if 
sticking the kids' noses in the material all day long is going to ensure learning. And that isn't working. Fascinating aspect of this book was um, really kind of talking about two things. One of them was kind of the social rewards of this diagnosis. And I'm always amazed by the brilliance of the pharmaceutical marketing teams in combination with their academics. One of them was this kind of concept around, hey, it's not your fault. So there's, uh, you know, any of the troubles that one can engage in that are somewhat typical to, uh, you know, to life and growing up, whether it's a, you know, a failed relationship or struggling in a particular job or not performing as well in school as you like can be attributed to this kind of developed condition. And um, it kind of alleviates people some of the shame and guilt that they might feel, especially when we're talking about adult ADHD, but also from parents. So we've talked about this on the podcast. You know, there's so many parents who are parenting through screens right now. Um, some of the economic challenges of living in the United States currently where, you know, most parents have to sustain full-time jobs. So it means that there's less attention to kids. There's the increase in technology. So this diagnosis can also alleviate some of that, that guilt for the problems that do exist. Yeah, that was the title of a very uh, widely selling book, It's Nobody's Fault by uh, Harold Koplowitz. He was at uh, New York University. He's now the founder of the Child Mind Institute. And he never met a drug he didn't like. And <laughs> yeah, and, and, and telling parents it's not their fault may make them feel better for a moment or two. But it also is denying uh, them the opportunity to learn and grow. I mean, that's what life is all about, is facing up to your mistakes and, uh, and learning from them. They, uh, they talk about blaming the parents. And whenever you start uh, questioning the value of the drugs, people will, they'll, they'll, they'll whip out their, their, their phrase, blaming the parents. Well, if a tennis coach tells a player, you're hitting that shot wrong, is he blaming the tennis player? Well, I guess he is. But I don't know how to get better at anything without first taking a look at what you're doing wrong. And there's a way, there's ways of conveying that information without demeaning the other person as a human being. That's called tact. I would hope somebody who chooses to make a living as a therapist would have at least the average amount of tact and if your therapist doesn't, you can always get a new therapist. On page 53, um, you quoted Dr. Bregan, who spoke about the harms um, from, I guess it was a trial, ADHD 199. The findings were, were devastating because they're from randomized placebo-controlled trials. The following harms were quite vast from central nervous effects, psychosis, hallucinations, convulsions, nightmares, nervousness, anxiety, irritability, crying, dysphoria, impaired cognition, zombie-like effects, headaches, tics, stereotyped activities or compulsions, decreased social interest. We see from a gastrointestinal anxiety, um, anorexia, nausea, vomiting, stomach pain, pituitary dysfunction, weight loss, growth suppression, palpitations, tachycardia, hypertension, arrhythmias, cardiac arrest, blur vision, rashes, anemia. There's withdrawal. 
which includes insomnia, evening crash, depression, overactivity, rebound, ADHD symptoms. Like, I want to make sure it's emphasized on this podcast that these drugs come with the potential for severe consequences, yet they really are minimized by our medical professionals. How did we get there where medical professionals minimize these risks? Yeah. Well, the, uh, you know, it's the, the, the point we keep coming back to is the evidence purporting to show these drugs are safe and effective as manufacturer is manufactured and controlled by the drug companies. I mean, we need data transparency and we need it now. And drug companies should not fund research. I mean, as I said before, that if they, if they do, they will hopelessly corrupt the process of science. Scientific truth will become whatever enhances the profits of the drug companies. It can't be otherwise. So drug companies should not be in the business of funding research and they shouldn't be allowed to advertise us uh, that's not going to fix all of our problems, but that's my opening bid. But I feel like the incentives, um, we talked about the incentives when I asked the question about knowing some people that say it works. I can understand what you're, you made some very good points there, but aren't this, we're never going to change this whole thing because the incentives for, for even politicians, lawmakers, things like that. I mean, and you, you do talk about this, this idea that there are incentives for diagnosing things like ADHD, as I'm sure other mental illnesses. Talk a little bit more about those incentives, um, particularly when it comes to, um, I don't know, maybe institutions, educational institutions, other things that may benefit from this. Yeah, well, well, parents, um, some parents actually lobby to get uh, their child diagnosed as, as ADHD, and that can lead to special perks and privileges for the child, uh, even uh, to the extent of funding. Uh, yeah, we said that the, the, the CEO of Viacom, who bailed out with a $100 million golden parachute, got the taxpayers of New York to pay for private school for his son because he was... Uh, he was diagnosed with ADHD, and uh, now that's an extreme example. But uh, a lot of children can get special, uh, can get private school tuition or extra tutoring, extra time for tests, uh, all kinds of special perks. And as I point out in the book, that, that doesn't stop when the child leaves public school. Uh, it, it universe, even they can even get extra time to take the law school aptitude test, the medical college admissions test. Uh, unfortunately, nobody has figured out a way to give all these ADHD afflicted aspiring docs extra time when <laughs> they're working the emergency room and a patient presents with, say, an open skull brain injury or a cardiac arrest. I think in the long run, and of course, it takes time and money and knowledge to get uh, to get this label for your child, and which uh, factors which automatically skew the balance in favor of the wealthy. And uh, an article in the Vanderbilt Law Review. Uh, sarcastically referred to this process as affirmative action for the elites. 
Mm-hmm. And in, in my opinion, they're absolutely right. Much better to take all the drugs, all the money we spend on drugs and hire more teachers, pay them better. And that would benefit all children, not just the ones who have the ADHD level. And in the long run, I don't think these parents who lobby to get their children labeled, uh, I don't think they're doing the kids a favor. Making excuses, cadging special favors, gaming the system, that is not the route to a satisfying life. Yeah, well said, because I think we all, there's such great diversity that exists in, uh, you know, the human population, and that diversity can drive uh, incredible, um, just, you know, evolution, like the, the fact that, you know, some people can create buildings, and then other people are great leaders, and others are mathematicians, and others are uh, academics, while others can, you know, construct, um, you know, homes and so forth. The diversity that exists among human beings is kind of what is being targeted through some of these diagnoses because some of these quote unquote symptoms are the exact symptoms that drive somebody to, to focus their attention in one area. So, you know, those, the daydreamer in, in school, for example, who's like thinking about the things they're going to do when they're, when they come home and, they're, and that they're passionate about that they're going to direct their focus and become a symptom because they're not able to select their attention to a particular subject that they have no interest. Yeah, I was talking with Dr. Healy about that, and he said, life is all about finding the right niche for ourselves. He told me the story of a patient of his, a young man who wanted to be an entrepreneur, who had big ideas. He knew how to get people excited about his ideas, and he wanted to be an entrepreneur. Well, so far, so good. But somehow this young man got it into his head that the way to do this was first you had to study business and then get a job at a giant corporation and work your way up the corporate ladder. And that's not entrepreneurship. That's the opposite of entrepreneurship. But anyway, he went to university and majored in business and found himself spending most of his time doing spreadsheets, a task that bored him and failed to inspire him. So he got diagnosed with ADHD and uh, got the drugs, was able to finish the degree, got a job at a giant corporation, and found himself doing more spreadsheets. (laughs) I mean, you're much better off spending your time doing what you're good at than trying to get good at something you're bad at. I have have a question I've been dying to ask. Um, Is ADHD... Um, a, a diagnosis that kind of opens the, the window for more diagnoses, like just, well, uh, the, 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 uh, children who, who get this diagnosis invariably are given stimulant drugs, amphetamine or Ritalin and mania is a well-documented effect of, uh, amphetamines and Ritalin. And then they get diagnosed with bipolar. And it's just reading the literature, it's just incredible. The willful blindness of these clinicians who talk about how these drugs revealed the presence of their bipolar disorder. Mm. 
unmask their bipolar dis disorder. And, and even if that were true, wouldn't it be better to leave it masked? But of course, it didn't unmask anything. It created mm -hmm. mania. And then you get the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Uh, the, they, for that, they give so-called antipsychotic drugs. And those are truly nasty drugs. Uh, cause sedation, massive weight gain. Uh, they, they, they knock the people on antipsychotic drugs. Their they're, they're, uh, life expectancy is reduced by something like 25 years. Those are really nasty drugs. Really appreciate the time that you spent with us. So we're starting to wind down here. Um, you made an interesting connection um, in the book between COVID um, and, uh, you know, culture and the drug culture in, you know, the Western world. I think what's, what's happened is the curtain has pulled, uh, been pulled down a little bit and exposed some widespread fraud, conflict of interest and corruption in, in medical research and medical interventions. And the United States specifically is very expert driven, meaning, you know, American families really turn to quote unquote experts for advice on how to make decisions in their own health and, and personal lives. And, you know, what we've seen here when the, when the curtain gets pulled down is, uh, you know, widespread harm. And, uh, you know, a lot of what we, what we have believed to be true is not really supported by strong science most certainly industry driven, financially driven. Is the, is, has the time ended where we just bi blindly trust uh, medical authorities? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, since time immemorial, nations conquered other nations and built empires. The ones that weren't good at it got stomped on by the ones that were. Well, seems to me that process has been completed. Little, the world has been conquered. Little kids in mud huts in African villages are now online. I've seen this. There are no more spots on the map marked here be tigers. And the only terror terrain left for would-be tyrants to conquer is our bodies. And you'll notice the would-be tyrants, they don't talk anymore about breeding master races or building empires on which the sun never sets. They talk about, they speak in much more dulcet tones. And that's a very good sign. That means they're afraid of us. We have the opportunity to take power away from our rulers and use it to make society over, not from the top down, but from the bottom up and build institutions and communities that operate on a human scale and do a better job of meeting actual human needs. And I don't claim to know all the details of what that would look like, but I'll be happy to have that conversation with anyone who wants to have it. That's the kind of re great reset we should all get behind. Love it. Well said. Fascinating discussion. Dr. Hahn, if people want to buy your book or learn more about you, where do they go? Yeah, uh, it's on Amazon.com and uh, Obedience Pills. And you can also find my Amazon page there to uh, get links to my other books. Great. Thank you for your time today. We really do appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.
Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.